Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live from Stony Creek, Ontario. August 18th. Today we have a quote from the Sutta Nipata, a bit of a liberal interpretation of what is actually said. It's the same meaning, it's just not exactly not exactly the literal wording, which is fine, but I'm going to go over the literal wording here with you. So the Pali is yena yena hi manyanti. Tato tang hoti anyata itadi so vinabhavo pasaloka saparyayam. Which means whatever, however they think it to be. It is other than that. It it becomes or it appears, it occurs different from that. This sort of disappointment, this sort of disappointment, there is this sort of disappointment, you could say. Behold the order of the world. Basa, behold. You wanted to expand it, you could say, Behold, in this sort of disappointment, the order of the world, the nature, the natural order of the world. So, a key principle here of disappointment, how disappointment and expectations. Uh, disappointment comes from expectations. Expectations that are against the nature of the world. And this is a way of summing up our mm, thought process in regards to desires. Desires lead us to become drunk, you could say, or intoxicated, and cultivate unrealistic expectations. We attain something that we desire and this gives rise to a mental construct, you could say, involved with the brain as well, which we understand as an expectation, uh, as the seeking out. So recognizing something similar in the future and applying the expectation to that this will make me happy just like that made me happy in the past there are different reasons why this doesn't work the brain doesn't work in this way reality doesn't work in this way 
Um, pleasure doesn't work in this way. So the more you get of something that has brought you pleasure, the less pleasure it brings you. But I think there's something, I mean, that's an important point, but moreover, well, I guess you'd have to say that coupled with the fact that life is uncertain and the nature of causality has nothing to do with our desires. leads to eventual disappointment. There's all this talk about positive thinking. I mentioned that, people who think positively. I mean, if it were really true, if it really worked, and I'm not saying that it may not work in the short term, there's power to confidence. Confidence has a power to it that does lead to success, at least in the short term. But if it were true, we could just avoid working for anything and, and just have positive thinking. I can do it, I can do it. But then you don't do any work. Desire leads to, leads inevitably to expectation. Expectation leads inevitably to disappointment because expectation is habitual, right? We come to expect as a habit and the more our expectations are, are met, the more we expect and the more immediate we expect, the, the stronger our expectation is. So it's inevitable. The, the nature of it is that we inevitably are disappointed. Moreover, our inability to understand the true nature of reality uh, accelerates the process. So we have uh, wrong ideas like this power of positive thinking that um, sets us up to, to, to fail, you know, puts us very much on the wrong track so that eventually it all comes crashing down. For those people who can get positive thinking to work, they're, they're, it's, their life is in a good way. So it seems like all they have to do is think they're going to get it, and voila, they get it. These are the worst. When they pass away, they're in a bad state. Another example is, is people who believe that when you die, there's nothing. I think yesterday I was talking about, or yesterday or the day before, I was talking about the null hypothesis, and I see I've just got a comment. I think it was a couple of days ago. People can't, there's um, real difficulty this repeated or inability to, I guess, inability on my part, as for one, to convince people of the argument. Um, and so there's our under, people's understanding of reality, which in the end ends up breaking down and being based on quite shoddy reasoning. Um, people have, they, there's this understanding uh, turns out to be flawed and, and and winds up leading people into great disappointment when they find that oh, oh I, I you know this you only live once thing well surprise you don't but it actually happens so there's this this accusation is that we have no proof this is an example of of 
um, the world working different from people think when they say we have no you know proof that it works differently because it's quite clear that when someone dies they're dead that's it nothing so this is based on our ability to measure thought output of others right our ability to measure the minds of others and our ability to measure the minds of others is based on uh, in a general realm it's based on the responses the external responses they give to us but of course we know that these external responses are well moreover it's it's to do with it's related to the body no the functioning of the body but even that is or, or that is based on the assumption the belief that the mind is dependent on the body and that the mind uh, the body creates the mind the body gives rise to all mental activity that all mental activity is dependent on the brain which is interesting because no one knows what the mind is and no one can explain or even come close to or even begin even begin the very very first step to explain how the brain gives rise to something that is very unlike the brain the brain being uh, cells atoms and the mind being awareness qualia consciousness how you get one from the other is uh, problematic at best. Now, Buddhism doesn't have that problem. And I can point out how there's no reason to have that problem. There's no reason for that problem to arise. The problem arises with the assumption that the physical world exists. And what is that assumption based on? What is the assumption that the brain, that the body, that three-dimensional, four-dimensional space-time exists. There's an interesting article somewhere on the net, on the internet about Einstein, Einstein's theory being somehow paradoxical. And if you really study, um, I mean, he, he refers it back to Hindu belief, but really his idea is that space-time is just an illusion because space and time cancel each other out an interesting thing if something is far away um, right the, the, we talk about distance but distance just means the time it takes something to travel there uh, so over time the distance becomes zero so distance and time are opposites and they cancel each other out so when you have space time it actually I don't know, it's, it's really a, the point the point of bringing it up is that it it uh, sends you down the rabbit hole and, and helps break away from this idea that this world somehow exists. It may just be, like the Hindus say, an illusion, an entire uh, a dream. And it makes much more sense to think of the universe as one thing, one entity, not multiple, not, not uh, distant, not having distance. Anyway, I'm not subscribing to that belief, not exactly, but pointing out that 
there isn't it isn't we aren't on solid ground to think that the world actually exists but then you say well then what is it that why why is it that it appears to exist you know you touch something and it's always there why is that i don't think that's a very um these sort of colloquial or you know uh, uh, anecdotal sort of anecdotal evidence where we are able to even even perform experiments and repeat them and get the same results again and again and again there's no reason to think that this isn't just a um, artificial construct even you could say a mental construct that's being perpetuated over time because all of our experiments all of our understanding all of our interaction with the world around us is based on the senses seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking they come first there's no way we can even postulate this supposed four-dimensional space-time without um, without our experience without talking about seeing hearing and it appears from quantum physics that well anyway I don't know I guess I don't want to go into that but um, there appears room there appears to be room for the idea that uh, the mind may very well be influencing the physical realm or be a be out, at least you could say be outside of the realm of quantum physics and it appears that quantum physics doesn't take into account the mind uh, and and does so purposefully purposefully uh, begins where the mind ends so meaning um, the experimenter decides to observe something you need that framework to actually talk about physical reality I mean, this is one interpretation of quantum physics that the observation is required to talk about reality reality isn't something Bohr famously said Niels Bohr famously said that our, our objective in physics isn't to describe what's out there but to only relate uh, and to work with experiences the 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 um, objects of experience I'm, I'm paraphrasing but it's quite, quite profound what he said so if uh, the point the only point here is that the claim that reality is based on experience has as much weight you know, or is, is as much is at least as likely to be true as experience is based on a physical reality there's no evidence or reason to believe that um, the it's the physical that creates the mental and so if we start with experience reality based on experience which of course many people aren't going to agree with but agree or not it's a valid hypothesis um, then we can only assume that experience is going to continue indefinitely we would have to have a reason why physical reality or changes in physical reality could change the nature of experience we don't have that at the moment of death we have no reason to believe that that cuts off the nature of experience what we have are some um, studies 
30 years of study of near-death experiences that they've been that they've done for the past 30 odd years showing that the mind actually does appear to be active when the brain is dead meaning the brain has stopped working there's no uh, discernible observable uh, recordable detectable brain activity certainly not the amount the level of brain activity that would be required for complex thought and yet the mind is active there is thought there is vision whether it's vertical meaning whether there actually is out-of-body experiences or not there is experience of seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking that is related to be um, um, clearer more distinct than ordinary experience not less and yet the brain is dead during the time that this is occurring that's what the evidence appears to suggest though there are people who discount that evidence as well and claim there are other reasons for it but regardless um, a very workable hypothesis is that the mind is actually active when the brain is dead so what we have is is this you know so we have this system of evidence um, of of you know claims premises that allow us to build an argument very reasonable argument that the mind uh, survives physical death so not only do we have a basis for it in other words turning the table and saying that uh, anyone who wants to suggest that death is the end is required to provide them the mechanism by which the physical reality is able to um, disrupt mental activity and then they also have to explain away the evidence which seems to suggest otherwise that the mind does appear to be active when the brain is dead is not active anyway just because I was reading someone commenting on this and, and more than once I've had you're seeing repeated comments about this rebirth thing bring it up because here it fits in with this quote we built up this very um, unstable system of beliefs surrounding the idea that when we die that's it that the brain creates the mind and therefore this body is all we have when it's gone that's it and, and it turns out to be fairly shaky not very not as well founded as as it's, it's uh, claimed to be but the neat thing about this quote is the last part where it says passa lokasa paryayam it's a it's a wonderful if you read the Pali, you get how poetic it is, right? It's actually like it rhymes in complex ways. Yena yena hi manyanti tatotang hoti anyata itadi so vinabavo pasalokasa pariyayang. But that's not the point. The point here is it's this is the disappointment is the nature of the world, the pariyaya, the way of the world it's the um, 
way the world works because once you have an understanding of how things work once you get it and your actions your expectations are in line with reality it turns out that you're you've actually this state is one that is free from desire it it has to be by its very nature because desire leads inevitably to um, unrealistic expectations so it's the freedom from desire or it's you could say it's the the, the right view right understanding is uh, coupled with freedom from desire which in turn uh, frees one from the world, takes one out of the world, and leads to the end of the world. Leads one to the end of the world, or freedom from suffering, Nibbana. So uh, the implications are that uh, the whole world works this way, that, that, that the whole world is based on unrealistic expectations. You could look, you could probably adapt this to talk about economy, you know, the idea of, of um, economic growth as, as being just building up to a crash, right? And this is why we have stock markets crash, because the whole foundation of it is unrealistic expectations and furthering our expectations and working and working until finally it collapses. And the point here is that in all, really in all aspects of our life, when it's when when our when we're involved in the world when we're inclined towards worldly things it's all based on wrong expectations anyway short quote but a lot of meaning quite interesting and gave me a chance to rant on about rebirth or non non-death it's not that buddhists believe in rebirth it's that we don't believe in death can quote me on that okay questions do you get to know yourself through meditation and how does that work with non-self seeing non-self does that make one know oneself I think you're tying yourself up in knots quite unnecessarily or you're being tricky with words what does it mean to get to know yourself? You get to know reality. You don't get to know yourself. No, you get to know reality. Reality happens to be non-self. Seeing non-self is not something that you you do. There's no I to see non-self. I don't see non-self. Non-self. There is an awareness that arises. There is, you can say, if you want to say technically. There arises the wisdom, there arises the awareness, there arises the realization. But there's no I that has the realization. The realization comes and goes. I was reading the biography of Ajahn Man. Oh, here we go. And it said he spoke with Savaka Arahants when he dwelled in a cave and they taught him. Mm-hmm. I thought people couldn't talk to people who had passed into Nibbana. So you could you elucidate this to me for me? I also thought people couldn't talk to people who had passed into Nibbana, very Nibbana. That book, I don't get it. That book, 
I guess I do get it. I've been in Thailand for a long time and I understand. It's not that I don't get it. It's an embarrassment, that book, honestly. I'm sorry to say, and I know it's a very, very popular, very, very famous book. That book is an embarrassment. I don't know how it got written, how it got popular. Um, I guess I do. I do know how things work in Thailand, but it shouldn't be popular. It shouldn't be the go-to book to talk about an enlightened being. I think there are some great things in it. Uh, I think Ajahn Mun was probably an awesome meditator, an awesome teacher. I'm suspicious about the monk who wrote it, whether he actually got it right. But assuming he actually got it right, I would say that Ajahn Mun wasn't an arahant, as people claim, because he obviously had some strange ideas about who he was talking to and where he got his teachings from. As a result of that book, people who follow in Ajahn Man's footsteps are able to take all of Ajahn Man's te teachings, wherever they come from, as canonical, as words of the Buddha. Because not only did Ajahn Man talk to the Arahants, I was told by a follower of Ajahn Man, they, he was able to talk to the Buddha. Yes, yes, I talked to the Buddha, and he said, you should all, uh, you know, bow down and worship me. Or he said, we should all now do meditation, um, clucking like a chicken. Right? There was a pamphlet that came out uh, using my teacher, using my teacher's name without really getting his permission, claiming that the Buddha was born in Thailand and that anyone who became a Sotapanna would be able to um, talk, communicate directly with the Buddha. And that the Buddha had, had said that he has now said that he wants to be referred to as Putta because that's the Thai pronunciation of the word Buddha. And since the Buddha was Thai, the Buddha wanted us to refer to him as Putta. I read this uh, very interesting pamphlet that was given to me. Anyway, there's a little bit of a rant for you. Um, the monk who wrote that book has a, quite a controversial history, and he's also quite famous in Thailand, but there's some sketchy, not sketchy, but questionable things that he's done. He was very actively... Um, anti-government you know he wrote an editorial denouncing a scathing editorial denouncing um with harsh speech calling them jackals calling them i don't know all sorts of names i, I mean they were corrupt so he wasn't an evil monk definitely there's no question that he had good intentions but there's a lot of question as to whether he was what he claimed to be which is apparently he claimed to be an arahant this is the monk who wrote that book, claimed to have no more defilements. He collected gold for the government, um, you know, things that just seem a little bit strange for an enlightened being, especially an enlightened monk. So I'm not sure whether Ajahn Man actually claimed that or whether the author was was using, in, inputting his own ideas into it. I don't know.
because it wasn't an autobiography it was a biography so but yes orthodox uh, it's not possible to talk with an enlightened arahant like Sariputta. No, you can't talk to him. There is nothing left of what was Sariputta for you to talk to. All of those formations have ceased without remainder. There's no question. Anything that you talk to would have to be a formation. The only thing that you could talk to, that you could hear from, would have to be a formation. All... Uh, all those formations, any any being who still, many being that still is involved with the creation of formations has not entered into Parinibbana, by definition. It's called Anupadisesa, there's no remainder. So I've heard some of his disciples defend it by saying it was an echo, like spiritual echo or leftovers like a reverberation which okay yeah believe in such things fine maybe such things exist like the buddha's reverberations like when you go to bodhgaya you can maybe you can hear something that the buddha left behind before he passed away power to you sketchy hard to believe but easier to believe than actually talking to the buddha it would have to have been already put into set in motion by the Buddha before he passed away, by the Arahants before they passed away, because they're certainly not talking to you, not after they've passed into Parinibbana. It'd have to be a one-way conversation. The Mangala series is not finished. I started that in Sri Lanka before I got dengue, and then got dinghy and kind of gave it up but i could start it again once i get my own monastery haha this is it once we have our own place i'll have a studio we'll set up a studio we'll start someday start doing videos again i think can't promise but i think it seems reasonable because i'll have people the the dream is that there will be people there uh, helping people around who are interested in listening to these talks and then I can give talks I actually went through all the mangalas when I was in uh, in Winnipeg over a couple of days I don't think I recorded all of that I think I recorded the second half of that series there is also an earlier series that's like from 2007 I think in 2007 I went through all the mangalas but you know wouldn't put too much stock in those teachings well I think they were good just kind of dull I think they were okay I dream a lot I dream even during a 15-minute nap Wow deeds during dreams have their karma yes deeds during dreams most likely have karmic consequences but what does that mean karmic consequences means they change you they when you wake up you notice how you still feel like that like you still feel angry or you still want or you still have the excitement that's all it means it's it's contributing to the habit of the habitual states of your mind uh, but without mindfulness it it can really affect you, you know? it can really veer you off in one direction 
I mean, not 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 hugely, but you can really get excited during dreams, right? What's to be done? Well, be more mindful. When you're mindful, you don't really dream. You just sleep. When you're mindful before you sleep. Is there something equivalent to a collective consciousness? No. Not that I know of. How crucial to our practice is being part of an actual Sangha? I use your teachings in place of one. Is this okay? Yes, the more important is a teacher. I've said this before. Not that I'm trying to push myself as a teacher or anything, but I think that's canonical. That's orthodox to say. More important than a Sangha is a teacher. That's what it means, association with good people. The Buddha said association with good people is the whole of the holy life. What he meant is the teacher. He didn't mean fellow meditators. That's good. There's benefit there for sure, but it's not not praised nearly as much as having a good teacher. So, uh, so yeah, could you use my teachings? Well, if I if I'm a good teacher, so you have to figure out whether I'm actually a good teacher or not. And then, if I am, then yes, that would be a good, good sort of good thing. And we have this community, which, as you can see, is quite helpful. Having a community is helpful, for sure. It can also be distracting. You know, if people come on here and start talking things and maybe offering conflicting advice, this is why teacher is much more important, because fellow meditators can mislead you, can drag you down, can confuse each other, can distract each other. It's not entirely useful, but can be very useful. How can you discern your own sincerity in regards to overcoming suffering? Sometimes I suspect I'm so thoroughly mixed up and programmed from such an early age that I might not even know what my genuine goal is. Well, that's why we don't have goals, really. I mean, start where you are and work on who you are now. You know, Work on the states of mind that arise, learn about them, understand them. We're not about giving up suffering. We're not about leaving the world. We're not about running away. We're about learning, understanding. It's just a fact that when the more you learn, the less attached you are. That's just a fact. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to let go. You just have to learn. And that, I think, is clearly approachable, you know, it's something that anyone can sink their teeth into. Learn. Develop as a person. Study yourself. Examine. Meditate, you know. Don't worry about where it's going to lead you. Just meditate. Now, you get the benefit here and now, you see clearly here and now, um, changing your habits here and now, that's that's all. Don't worry about, do I really want to attain Nibbana? Do I really want to become an Arahant? That's rubbish. It's useless. Of course you don't. No, you don't. If you did, you'd be one. If you really want, if that was really your aim, your inclination, you'd be there already. You have to do. Your job is to show yourself why the fact that you don't want to become enlightened is problematic, is, is causing you suffering. You have to get there where you finally see that, ah, yes, my desires are causing me suffering. 
Do you know the reflection of repulsiveness well enough to teach it, Bhante? If so, can you give a quick breakdown of the practice itself, please? Yeah, I mean, not in detail, but the common one is to do the first five. It's called the Tadja Panchaka Kamatana. Kesa Loma Nakadanta Tadjo. And then you do it backwards. Tadjo Naka Nakesa Loma Naka. Tadja danto nakha loma kesa. You do it forward and then you do it backward. And then you move on to the next five. You separate them, or not five, you separate them into groups. We're, we're going, going to be going through this soon in the Visuddhimagga, but you have the groups of them and you go through the groups and you go through them forward and backward. And you go through any one that, if, if anyone is not clear to you, you can stop on it and just say kesa, kesa, kesa for a while until you clearly are are aware of the nature of hair. And then you go loma, 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 loma until you're clearly aware of the body, body hair. Naka, 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 the nails. Danta, danta, dajo. But then eventually you go through them quickly you become proficient and you go through them quickly and it can lead you to high states of calm. As a as a protective meditation, you can just go through them casually. You know, you don't have to actually chant in 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 rapid sequence. You can pick one and focus on it. You can pick all five of them and go through them. Read through the Visuddhimagga, it's got descriptions of them all. That's what I think any, there's a teacher who does teach these in Sri Lanka, and that's what he says. He says, go read the Visuddhimagga. You know, read through each of the description of each of the 32 parts of the body, and until you really are clear, you can even memorize, or you, know, you should have all the characteristics of each of the 32 parts down. Yes, the monastery is already over half-funded. Well, not the monastery, but uh, the project is already over half-funded. The project is going to get it started, which is great. There's going to be a need for about $2,000 a month just to keep it going. So that's the next question we have to ask. But that question is going to be put off a year. The way it's going to work, if we can get this project completed then we will undertake a one-year project and that one year is basically already certain there's no question of whether that is possible but at the end of that one year we then have to see whether there is support for another year if there's support for another year we will continue the lease and if it's working if it's useful so the idea here um this kind of project is really um risk free right at the end of the year if it's not working we just stop the, the 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 hurdle that we had to pass is whether we can logistically speaking run it for a year and i think um it's pretty clear that that's you know if if this project pans out then that's it that was the last question and we'll do it for a year so then over the year the idea will be to see whether there's local support especially local support, but you could also say international support, enough to do it for another year. If there's not, then 
I would probably just move back here into this monastery, which is fine. I mean, I'm good friends with the monks here. The head monk said, if I start a monastery over there, he'll come and stay with me because he's going to university with me in the fall. The two of us is, are going as monks to the university part-time. How to deal with fear? I guess besides the obvious, I mean, the obvious is to use mindfulness. When you are aware of the fear, you say, afraid, afraid. When you're aware of the bodily sensations associated with it, tension, fat, rapid heart beating, a headache, um, maybe the shaking if it's real extreme fear. Being aware of all those physical sensations and noting them as well as separate from the fear because they bounce off of each other. Fear leads to physical sensations. The noticing of the physical sensation amplifies the fear so if you catch the physical sensations, it doesn't amplify the fear. The fear doesn't continue. So you go so uh, back and forth, catching both of those. Besides that, uh, the Buddha is a good meditation on the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha is a good way of helping to ward off fear. The Buddha said, when you're afraid, just think, itipiso bhagavarahangsammasambuddho. Think about the Buddha, chant this to yourself in English or in Pali. My teacher said you can shorten it to just Buddho me nato, he said. He said to tell people, I've got this on recording, he looked at me and he said, you understand what I'm saying? This was back when my Thai wasn't so good, but I understood. I said, yeah. He said, then tell all the foreign people as well. So I, it's my job for many years ago to tell all of you to say buddho me nato if you're afraid means the buddha is my refuge the buddha is my protector my refuge buddho me nato dhammo me nato sangho me nato do monks get free tuition no no, that was a big question as to whether it would actually be worth going back to university because um, there are some student loan, there's some student loan activity involved with that. So there's going to be a debt to pay there. I don't know. I don't know whether it was actually proper. I don't know whether this is actually the right decision. I do know that it's it's a decision and it's a, a project that will work, will have great potential. I don't know whether it was entirely the right decision because going into debt, I mean, I won't obviously be paying back the debt unless I disrobe, but otherwise uh, there's an assumption that the organization will be um, taking care of. The thing about student debt here in Canada, though, is there's also the potential that it eventually is forgiven. I'm not quite clear how that works, but... It certainly is interest-free for a long time. But, you know, we've talked about this, uh, the board talked about this before and was actually okay with the idea of funding tuition. It's not like as expensive as it is in America, so uh, there was the idea of funding it as a sort of a training. Because it's not like this is useless. I'm going to be going to school to learn things. I'll be studying language, hopefully. 
if I can get into the classes, I'm going to try to take French, maybe German. I'll be taking Latin and religious studies, peace studies, all useful things. It'll give me a chance to write some papers probably and I can publish those papers. Trepidatious, trepidatious. I don't know, it's quite soon actually. School is probably starting fairly soon and I'm not, I don't know how ready I am. But whatever. One foot in front of the next, one foot in front of the other. Anyway, great, we have lots of YouTube viewers, 42 YouTube viewers. Hello, everyone. And we have a whole bunch of people at our meditation page. Again, if you want to ask questions, you have to do it over there at the meditation. I mean, it's not over there to you, it's over there to me. Uh, Meditation.sirimangalo.org to go to that page. And... You have to be there when I'm live, when we're live. Okay, I'm going to end there. Thank you all for listening. Wish you all a good night. See you all tomorrow. Good night.